science is the thing that can give you a little clearer picture of the things you can and can't change, and or science and or history and or just the nature of the world. Um, but then once you do, once you have that sense, then you focus on the things you can change or might change. Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Joshua Spodek. We bring you leaders acting on their environmental values because too many people told me, I want to act, but if others don't, then what I do won't matter. We're here to make it obvious that you're not alone. You're part of a global community, a majority. Also, too many people told me, doing small things doesn't make enough of a difference and big things take too much work. Action matters more than the size you start with. You'll hear how action motivates guests from small things to doing big things. You won't find guilt, blame, doom, gloom, or telling people what to do. You will find leading without relying on authority, which brings what I found missing from acting on environmental values. Joy, discovery, growth, community, meaning, purpose, value, sharing. With global demand for environmental action, I bet you'll see that acting on your values doesn't distract from your life and career. Following these leaders' footsteps and beyond enjoying the environment, I bet you'll see promotions, raises, more loyalty and trust in your relationships, and more. It was a great honor to have the writer behind the New York Times blog, Dot Earth, which ran for something like 10 years up until recently. Andrew Revkin got that started. You know, whether you agree with the New York Times politics or not, and I hope that I don't have just a bunch of people who agree with me listening to this podcast. I really want to get diversity of views and thoughts and things. It was a pretty prominent placement in mainstream media. And if that's not prestigious enough, now he's in National Geographic, where he's not just reporting, but he's advancing how they create community. So not just telling stories, but actively involving their readers and their listeners and their community. He has a very long-term view on, from personal experience on the US and New York environment. He saw clean and pure environments becoming polluted. He reported on the early understanding of climate change, how it first started coming out, how people viewed it then, and how it evolved until today, so you can start getting some of that context. He shares a bunch of what works in other areas. So if you're listening to this podcast for ideas of how you can take on a leadership role or, or become more active, listen to ideas for how things work. For example, how not to get frustrated or how the Volkswagen scandal can help and give hope for influencing corporations. I hope that you can find a lot in this conversation and in Andrew Revkin's writings for resources for you to act on what you want to act on. Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Joshua Spodek. I'm here with Andrew Revkin. Andrew, how are you? I'm good. And uh, we've at, we're actually at my place. We've been talking for a while, but the listeners haven't met you. I wonder if you could give a bit of a background about yourself at that top level. I am 62 years old. I've been spent half my life writing about sustainability issues, so more than 30 of those years, um, mostly for the New York Times. I'm now at National Geographic Society, and I started out in life, once I got into journalism, thinking I was an environmental journalist, but my beat and my pursuit is a question, which is like, how do we, <laughs> how do we navigate the next few decades with the fewest regrets? Uh, it's an open question. I, uh, when I was at the Times, I started a blog called Dot .Earth, 2007 that ran through 2016 and was exploring a question. It wasn't like an environment blog. It wasn't a, it was um, that. So that's kind of me. Uh, the, the, you know, I do lots of other things. I, I'm really curious. Uh, you, you ask the question, or you say your business is to ask the question, how do we get out of this? How do we fix this? Not how do we, no, I used to think, well, I used to think, you solve environmental problems because I grew up in the 20th century when we did solve environmental problems. They they were very discreet though. It was um, 
you know, the sewage going into the river uh, or Narragansett Bay where I grew up in Rhode Island or sewage in the Hudson or wherever you live, um, uh, smog, you know, on, on bad combustion and a lot of pollution was killing people and making people sick and it was in your eyes and in your face and we, uh, in a bipartisan way, the country did amazing things and there, those things have spread in other countries as well. Uh, there's still a lot of work to be done on conventional pollution, but it was discreet, and it was literally an engineering, and pretty. the politics was easy. The engineering was pretty easy, too. So when you say discreet, you mean local. Like, we've, this canal is polluted. We will, the, the cause of the pollution will fix that. We'll, we'll make them, well, someone was shipping it off to other places. To a certain extent, but, but sewage was not shipping it to other places. Sewage was the Hudson River full of condoms and, and turds <laughs> and Coney Island whitefish, you know, that was the phrase. And... Um, that you build sewage plants, and we built better and better ones. Um, there are issues still there with there definitely are justice issues because where the sewage plant gets built, like the one on Harlem on the, on the Hudson River, is a function of politics, and the weakest community ended, ends up with the, that. And they built a park on top of it, but if you drive past there, of course, smell. you smell it. Yeah, and um, so the issue, but but basically, the the country in the '60s um, got around the idea that. <laughs> that that a river full of crap is a bad thing, and and it was something that unions supported because you had to build stuff, sewage plants. That that yeah, everyone got in, in, in behind it. Uh, industry, you know, there's a lot of cement poured to get into a sewage plant, so it, it sort of suited everybody. And now, in in the twenty, when and we did solve some pretty complicated ones. Like then along comes a much more subtle environmental problem: uh, CFCs, chlorofluorocarbons, and other synthetic chemicals eroding the ozone layer. That science built over the course of a decade, and, and the, um, there was the Montreal Protocol uh, 31 years ago was this um, final step, well, one of the final steps toward really getting rid of a chemical that was going to have a long-term impact on our health and welfare and on ecosystems. So then everyone thought, oh, wow, you know, that was, it was grand. It was a grand achievement. But it was Global also, yeah, but it was also... Uh, discreet and solvable and not costly. The, as I, and I'll, I'll get back to that thing in a moment. 1988, I started writing about global warming. And like everyone writing about it or dealing with it at that time, whether you're a scientist or policymaker, it felt like the same kind of thing. Something coming out of smokestacks, tailpipes, burning forests, a, a greenhouse gas accumulating in the atmosphere. Uh, okay, let's pass a bill uh, or a treaty. Mm -hmm. And we'll solve that problem. So, and I wrote stories for the next 20 years, from 1988 through the mid to like 2006 at least, thinking, well, I'll just write better and better stories. I'll incorporate better graphics. In 2005, I worked on a, a documentary the Times did on the Arctic, on Arctic climate change, and you know, winning awards and thinking, yeah, we're, we're you know, but then all that all, through all that time, emissions of carbon dioxide kept going up and up and up and. And that's when I started to realize this is bigger than a quote-unquote environmental problem. Oh, man. I mean, it's also... I, I can't help but look at... It's a systemic issue. It's right. a system that's designed to divert... It's to distribute resources, and it distributes resources in some places more than other places. And so if you're in a place where it's not distributed, you don't have the resources. So it strikes me as an arena where you work in a consistent, concerted way if you care about equity and opportunity. It's something you work on. Uh, and, you know, I look back in history, we didn't always have a Department of Health and Human Services. We didn't always have an EPA. These are emergent 
arenas that we invest um, time and resources in going forward, not because we think we're going to solve the problem. Uh, the war on cancer, 1971, Richard Nixon. Mm -hmm. How are we doing on that? <laughs> we're going backward. Well, well, not so, backwards and forwards. You, you know, uh, but what's happening is um, the things that matter in addressing cancer are the same things that matter in addressing climate change. Uh, 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 surveillance, test, you know, understanding the system and when something's going awry. Um, testing new interventions, absolutely. You know, chemotherapy sucks. Uh, my, wife, my mother is going through this right now. And um, uh, it's so primitive, and we know it's primitive, and there are scientists working hard at the frontiers of new methods. But... You know, Arizona State sent a, an astrophysicist to the National Cancer Institute seven years ago because they said, we need new ideas. That's absolutely part of it. But none of this is a solvable problem. Now, I want to ask you something that what, what you're talking about makes me want to ask a question that I asked you when we met last time. Do you get frustrated? And you immediately said no. And I'm kind of curious about, uh, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but that's what no. I remember. So in, in, correct me if I, if I remember it wrong. So it sounds like you're talking about something that could be very frustrating, and I think a lot of people feel like, well, it's really hard, and I'm, it's just easier to keep doing what I was doing, and I'll just keep doing what I was doing. Well, but I don't hear that from you. Well, I know. Well, and it is, it is hard, and it's mostly I want, the challenges are enormous. You know, it, and, and it's all an emergent and new environment. You, know, you talk about the climate and the world's physical environment and its biological environment changing profoundly right now because of invasive species and climate change and mobility and everything. But the other thing that's changing even faster is the communication environment. And it's and anyone who thinks he or she understands that is probably wish, being wishful to the max. Because And there, too, to me, the question is, is the noise factor out there? You know, we've, it's been totally frustrating you know, to those who jumped in um, early thinking this is finally the vision of a connected planet. You know, we can now be a global village because you can be aware of Malala, you know, in an instant and um, and and on and on. Uh, it's easier now than ever for an environmental group to say the palm oil plantations in Indonesia are, are devastating orangutan habitat, all of you people eating the candy bars using that palm oil, you know, and that's changed things. It's great. But then along comes... Oh, specifically, that got people to stop, that got Nestle to yeah, stop. Yeah, it was a specific example of... Uh, like Greenpeace. It, it was Greenpeace, yeah. and I've mentioned this before. It's sort of this shows you the connectedness and, and making an argument using data from the source and and clever marketing to pressure, to have consumers build pressure on, on a company to act better. Is, is fantastic. I, I wrote a piece recently about if we do finally have a possibility of CSR, the, you know, which is basically just a hashtag, corporate social, corporate social responsibility. responsibility being more than than a slogan, uh -huh. because it can be enforced. Uh, the Volkswagen scandal with was that you know was a huge scandal, but how did it get un, un revealed? It was a hundred ten thousand dollar grant from a tiny nonprofit group to a West Virginia University laboratory mm -hmm. that basically. Was the uh, unthreaded the the whole thing, and that capacity is widespread. So if if we line up the incentives right, they're not the incentives are not right right now to have more of that. And but that shows me that's the great upside. The downside is everything that's been freaking us all out lately. You know, uh, Russian interference and 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 fake news and and noise. The noise factor is so high, and people just turn off. And my but my in all of that my. Um, 
engagement and interest in keeping the pursuing something better is just like part of it. It's just who you I think of seeing what you're describing. When I asked, do you get frustrated? I think I think your big your main answer was yeah, there's big wicked problems, there's big potential solutions. I'm sorry, not solutions. But there's like communication, global networks, there's there's opportunity to act on these things. And then you also mentioned you yourself, this is I, I think you said your nature. You, you said you really enjoy this. On a personal level, I think you enjoy rooting out, I'm reading, tell me if I'm wrong, you enjoy rooting out things that are happening that people don't know about, bring that to the fore. Hopefully yeah. people will see, oh, that worked there. Okay, the West Virginia thing, that got a big result. But then it, it didn't continue. How can right. we make that systemic? Or how can we make yeah. that work? I, yeah, well, I guess, you know, frustration, the other word that people sometimes have when they think about climate change is, not some, is, is worry, you know, and um, part of my a emerging different model for thinking about what this thing is has taken away the sense of worry. You know, like, do you worry on a daily basis you're going to die? We're all going to die. I had a stroke five years, six years ago, and that really woke me up to mortality. But I and I have tried to change some things, you know, to make sure that um, things are going in a different direction. Um, I wrote a piece a couple of years ago examining the stroke, how that revealed to me my mortality and thinking deeply about that in terms of how you build your life going forward and the climate problem, which feels like mortality in many ways. Aspects, when you, once you realize it's an emergent property of, significantly an emergent property of how we've developed as a species the last thousand years, that it's um, it takes away some of that worry is to me the difference between the way the world is and the way you think it needs to be. As all stress seems to be. Right. You know, whether you call it urgency, frustration, worry. So, and then people say, well, oh my God, well then, you know, isn't that fatalism? I mean, one reaction to that is it's just fatalism. You're just giving up. Mm -hmm. And to me, no, it's just, it's like recognize the problem for what it is. It, it, the other model or metaphor for this that's come to me recently is kind of like um, the serenity prayer from, uh, you know, give me the, I can't remember the details oh, of it. to do what I can. Yeah, yeah you, you, know, you know, know what you can change, know what you can't, and know the difference. Yeah. <laughs> Essentially, that's my agnostic version of the serenity prayer. And science can help you with that delineation. Stoicism. <laughs> well. Uh, anyway, I don't Yeah, but, but science can, you know, science is the thing that can give you a little clearer picture of the things you can and can't change, and or science and or history and or just the nature of the world. Um, but then once you do, once you have that sense, then you focus on the things you can change or might change. Are you enjoying meeting this guest? Are you thinking about what you care about? I recommend making it active. Think about what you could do, not just analyze and plan, not do what others tell you to, but to live by your values. You'll enjoy your results. People will follow you more than you think and you'll impact more than you expect. Go to joshuaspodek.com slash podcast for examples of what others have done. Oh, that's exciting Perhaps, to you. Yeah. I'm glad yeah. you said that. And okay, now I want to shift to uh, yeah. the challenge. So uh, I've said it to you before. I'll say it quick so you don't have to, but some listeners, this might be the first episode. So yeah. um, the environment seems to be something you care about. And I'm going to invite you at your option to take on a behavior, something to act on that, uh, and here's the rules. Uh, you don't have to solve all the world's problems all by yourself overnight. Thank you. <laughs> uh, and it can't be something you're already doing. I mean, keep right. doing those things, but you know, something right. new. And it can't be you telling someone else what to do. We've right. got enough people doing that. Sure. And uh, there has to be some measurable difference that's not just uh, 
awareness or education. Yeah. Those are fine. But I, 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 for this, those aren't the end goal. So is, is there anything that has, that's come to mind for you to do based on what you value? Well, in strict terms of math, we, we've done, we've greatly reduced our, our uh, meat consumption. We hardly ever have red meat. We have poultry and uh, fish a lot. But um, it would be too easy to say we're going to cut more meat out of our diet. Mm. Um, it would be too easy for me to say I'll take the train into the city more, which I, I do. I take the train in. That's my route into the city now. I, I don't drive in hardly at all. <laughs> but but it, it's flying. For me, it's flying, like for so many people, in, in, especially in communication, especially what I do, which is facilitating grant making at the global scale on telling better stories. <laughs> I go a lot of places and, and um, finding a way to cut back on that and still have impact has got to be what I would focus on. Otherwise, it would be kind of hypocritical. And, and now to get a measurable thing there is, is an interesting question because statistically my, my travel needs have been very variable. So I don't know how we could measure a real change in the trend um, going forward from this year, or you, I think certainly not in the next 30 days. It's already well. You know, so, people uh, do things sometimes. It's a week time. Some people like eating meat is so important to them that yeah. like, a week is a big deal. Some uh, people yeah. they want to do something that takes a year to, to work yeah. out. Like I'm, I'm uh, in a week or two. It's Dory Clark is going to be six months of her uh, eating vegan in a certain in a certain way. Yeah. So if she wanted six months. Yeah. So. It's the time scales, whatever works for you. Yeah. So, um, again, for me, it, it's flying. I'm trying to think of, uh, and not all of it's within my control now that I'm working for a big giant entity like National Geographic Society. Uh, so I could say, uh, there's a certain number of trips to schools and stuff that are discretionary. <laughs> and I can, I have shifted some of those to sort of a Skype kind of thing wow. when I can. And I could, there has to be a way for me measurably to to take a stronger stance on doing more of that. I, I'd have to come up with a metric. So, I, but I'm so glad to, you're the first person who's actively saying, I will consider flying <laughs> less. No one, you're the first person. I mean, I've talked to people who have already done it, uh, lower the flying. Yeah. But most people, it's like, you cannot touch that. Like, I oh, I think, oh, I, I think it's, I think it's touchable. It's it's challenge it is challenging because and there is great value in face to face. There are innumerable meetings. Just in the last few weeks, I've been to where if I hadn't been in a room with people and had it's it's almost almost not quite random, but we're overhearing conversations and stuff. There is value to the exchanges that happen in face to face workshops and meetings. The challenge is to replace it with something even better. Yeah, and technology can play a role there, although it's still. Quite often, the frustra- frustration level can be really high in technology. So, so there, I, I'd like to work that through. I have a vision, you know, which relates to what I'm doing at National Geographic of, about having a much more, um, an easier way to interface in that sort of virtual reality way. With like one, I mean, there are these examples that pop up periodically. There was this these three young uh, Brits. Around 2000, uh, <laughs> a decade ago, they were going around the Atlantic Ocean. They they took container ship across the Atlantic to limit their miles. They 
they were recently out of college and they did this communication project called Atlantic Rising, where they ran little workshops on sea level rise in coastal communities. But it was in Nigeria and in Scotland and Nantucket and a 28,000 mile radius around the Atlantic. Um, and they connected a lot of those schools through Skype. So Nigerian students could talk to students in Massachusetts about what it's like to live in a coastal setting facing sea level rise. Fantastic. And National Geographic has got this incredible education component to it. And uh, there are people working actively on trying to build that capacity to uh, engage students. And, you know, to me, it's, the, it's that interactivity that does not have to be getting on a, a plane. A plane. Yeah. Um, and it can lead to meaningful change or meaningful exchanges. I, I think there's lots to be done there, not just in my own life, but in how I can build, if I can help build tools that can do that. It'd be great. So do you think you have, is the goal that you have well enough defined for you that if we pick a time to talk again, that you'll be able to say, I figured out how to quantify it and I did it? Yeah, I think probably a year from now. It, wouldn't, it, couldn't, be a, it couldn't be sooner than a year from now. Okay. It could be a year from now. Then I propose that after we finish this, then we'll get out our calendars and yeah. schedule when the next sure. one will be. I presume we'll be in touch in the meantime anyway. Oh, I'd like to. I really like what you're doing here because you're, you know, you're testing a new, well, not a new, but a, you know, an important way of sharing and shaping ideas. Conversation is so much, is so undervalued. We have tried um, an experiment over three years, for th almost three years now. Sorry, I'm chewing on a nut. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, Called our Warm Regards. It was a podcast I started with Eric Holthouse, meteorologist, uh, writes for Grist now, and J Jacqueline Gill at the University of Maine, who's a paleoecologist. Uh -huh. And and we have very different backgrounds, attitudes on aspects of the climate problem. But the conversation has helped us, and we bring on guests, and it's been a great experiment in trying to see where a conversation can lead in, in, on an issue like climate, which in, is surrounded by people with fundamentally divergent, mm -hmm. divergent senses of the problem, of what you do about it, and even of just basic sort of cultural value sets and the kind of thing. Conversation is, is key. I, I'm glad you agree. Oh, yeah. Uh, I'm also, no, I don't want you to be late to NYU, because it's 147. Yeah. And you're at 2? You have to be there, to be too. Out. Yeah. Okay. Um, I want to wrap up with a question. Is there anything I didn't think to ask that's worth bringing up? Uh, keep in mind, we'll be here. We'll talk again. Um, I think the world is, is positioned. I, I guess the other thing, the thing I hope is that the connectivity and the noise factor around it and the confusion around it and the initial exploitation of it around our our 21st century online communication platforms, that that's that a lot of what we're seeing right now is the initial turmoil that comes with a fundamentally new capacity. You're talking about fake news and all the... Yeah, and it, right, and, and not knowing how, and many people not feeling they know how to get real information or how to engage meaningfully, or at National Geographic, um, a big priority for us right now is research on... Um, uh, making the case for nature. How, how, how can you use these great tools or photo photography and film to get beyond someone just liking something mm -hmm. uh, to actually engaging them on, well, let's say, eating less meat or um, having a different approach toward um, you know, being for, let's say, manufactured meat, <laughs> if you, you know, they want to go there. Or whatever, whatever. If you're the, the founder of uh, 
Impossible Burger. Oh yeah, yeah. So, um, so my hope is that what we're seeing, what we're in right now, is a state of unbelievable noise—a noise factor. It's kind of like, uh, in that there'll be a directionality coming forward and, and a sense of motivation, and especially in our education system, that where kids can learn the skills and, and develop the motivation, motivation to, um, as I say sometimes, to 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 make reality cool. Like until reality is cool, meaning desirable, meaning that you feel that it's better to be the person who can help foster some understanding of what's going on with politics or with climate than to be the person who's just sending around caricatures. That and that's that's a frontier. I don't know the answer to the question. How how can you make reality cool? And and this would be like Tristan Harris, uh, at, who was a Googler who now is championing uh, take back your time. You know, he's trying to get um, uh, software coders, the, the algorithm writers, to uh, do a code of ethics. So that because it's so easy to capture our attention and take it to the downside. Jaron Lanier just has a book out right now, and he you know, t- ten reasons to go to turn off your social media. I don't think you have to go that far, but um, his his thing is, you know, it's really easy to take us down using social media because all of our reflexes, as he said in an interview yesterday on WNYC, that our, our reflexes are the things that make us stressed or angry or fearful are really fast and and relaxing and understanding and the other side is really slow and the and the and the code writers know this and so it's so so much easier to capture you through fear stress and all that kind of thing but can we build an ethic uh, and a culture where things can go in the other direction that, that it's early days of even understanding whether that's possible so i want to i want to thank you for sharing that last bit sure. and and i want to share something that the listeners can't get which is there's as you're saying these things I'm seeing a gleam in your eye, and there's a kind of smile. They can probably hear that there's a smile. Like you're, I, I read that you're enthusiastic about these things. That these are things that you look forward to. Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> there was a guy at uh, what's his name, Stuart Hart. Um, I heard he's at Cornell. He he's a management person. He gave a speech somewhere years ago, and he said every generation in history has felt it's exceptional. But there's a there's a word for this. Chronocentrism, and but I think we really are at an exceptional <laughs> moment. You know, given where we are with our surge, this great acceleration, as uh, sustainability scientists call it. Given that the trajectories are the signs that these trajectories on emissions and resource uh, intensity and everything can change. We're, this is like an amazing moment to be alive. You know, it's like a hang on for, to your hat moment. There's huge uncertainty, complexity. Um, but uh, what a consequential time to think that and they're also like with the VW thing There is potential to be asymmetrically powerful in a, in a positive direction Now there's also potential like with ISIS to be asymmetrically powerful and on the other end So that's not new, but I think the capacity factor right now is is um, Thrilling in many ways even as it is sometimes exhausting that's a big message that I want to get out there because so many people feel like it's so complicated that I don't want to do anything or I can't yeah. do anything. And you're saying it's so complicated that everyone's got an opportunity. Well, yeah, I'll point back to the VW thing as just one example. And it doesn't have to be internet stuff. In the 60s, um, here in the Hudson River, which was a sewer, 
and ships were coming in and dumping their crap before they were taking on loads in Albany. Um, these fishermen and, and some of their allies, they found these 19th century laws, laws that were on the books about that allowed a citizen to collect a bounty if you identified someone uh, dumping something in the waters of the United States. It's a 19th century law that had, as far as I can recall, not been used at all. And they, they took these laws out of mothballs and went to court, and uh, they generated not only change in the practices of the ships, but they generated um, revenue in which they built the, the Hudson River Environmental Movement on. Oh, wow. And that says, you know, creativity, searching for tools, thinking, sharing information, it gives you potential for lots of cool things to happen. And now, and I would love to think that there's a law in the books that could do the same thing for uh, air pollution, you know, it's not there. Um, but thinking creatively about these things, and going back in time, like in that case, can be very beneficial. And that was pre-internet. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's attitudes and creativity and exploiting new opportunities and great time to be around. I'm going to close it there. About opportunity, about creativity, about taking advantage of, of... I mean, if someone's listening to Leadership in the Environment podcast, I presume they want to lead in some way. And I feel right. like you've opened up doors for a lot of people. And I presume if they read your stuff, if they dig into Dot Earth and they dig into the stuff that's going to be coming out of National Geographic, they're going to find lots of opportunities that are there for the taking. Yeah, I would hope so. Can they contact you? Yeah, at, well, at Revkin on Twitter and uh, arevkin at ngs.org, as in National Geographic Society.org. Okay, and I'll get those uh, I'll get those links to put on the yeah. page. And you know, basically, just Google for Revkin and whatever. <laughs> Google Google for Revkin and Corporate Social Responsibility, Google for Revkin and Rainforest, Google for Revkin and Climate Policy, and you'll find too much. He finished on a hopeful note talking about power, how we all have power, the power to influence others, the power to influence ourselves. I think that's the root of his hopefulness, that he knows the extremes of the environment in every direction, how we act on it and how we don't, and he sees the potential for power for us to act. As for the personal challenge, he's changed a lot already. But he was quick to come up with plenty of other things that he could do, which I also find as well. The more that I do, the more that I find I can do. And it sounds like that's the case for him as well. And he considered not flying, which so many people say is impossible for them. Now, saying it's impossible, I think that's a statement about their imaginations more than what's possible or impossible. I think that illustrates the root of the power that we all have to start with changing ourselves. So I look forward to hearing his second conversation. Does hearing leaders acting on their values make you think of yours? Nothing will make you feel better than acting on them. Value means better. Acting on your values means improving your life. Committing publicly helps many people and builds community too. If you want, click on Commit to a Personal Challenge to share what you do with this community. You'll be a leader among leaders. We're more than a podcast. We're a movement to share how acting on environmental values means fun, joy, growth, and so on, not sacrifice or deprivation. If you want to join or help, contact me at josh at or at joshuaspodak.com slash podcast. You'll grow as a leader, you'll enjoy yourself, and the world and your communities will thank you for it. <laughs>